Hey, good morning, Gretna family. It's Pastor Rob. So great to see you today. Hey, many of you know that prior to me um, being blessed and humbled to be able to be a pastor full time, uh, I was in a different business. I was in the restaurant business. And I kind of fell into it after college. I uh, didn't like my major. Should have listened to my mother. She said I wouldn't like it. But, you know, you live and learn, right? And so I ended up starting to wait tables and bartend, and I ended up going into management and upper management and multi-unit management, all kinds of stuff, uh, before God decided it was time for me to move on. And I finally listened, to be honest with you, because <laughs> I put it off for a while. But one of the companies that I used to work for was an old chain that's no, now long, no longer in existence. It was called The Cooker. And the cooker is where I really learned how to lead people. It's where I really, really came into contact with all kinds of people from different walks of life and really got to know people outside my bubble. Uh, and, and it's also where I met my wife. So <laughs> the cooker was good to me on the whole. That said, it was also one of the most difficult um, moments of my career that took place with the cooker. There were a few because I was with him for a while, but the one in particular I want to talk about today is the Willow Lake Cooker. It was in Indianapolis and it was a, a store that I worked at for a while as an assistant and then moved away. And then Heather and I felt like we needed to move back to Indy to be near her family. And so we asked to move back and said, you know, this is, this was the only one left in the city. Can we work here? Or can I work here? And they said, absolutely, you can. And so they moved us back and, and moved us into here. And But one of the discussions that we had prior to moving back to ND to go work at this restaurant uh, was, is this restaurant financially stable? We knew some of the other restaurants within that corporation were beginning to struggle, and there's a reason why it's no longer in business now. <laughs> but I was assured that that one was going to be fine. It was going to be fine for the foreseeable future. It was profitable. It was doing well. Uh, the lease agreement was favorable. Everything pointed to, yes, it's doing fine. And as I looked at the finances, it, it was. It was doing great. And so I go back, and I, and I took a demotion to go back because we wanted to go back to Indy. And Within short order after I got back there, um, I got re-promoted back to that role of leading the restaurant, of being the general manager. But within three months of taking over that role, I get a phone call from my boss who says, hey, um, I need you to call an employee meeting for tomorrow morning. This would have been a Saturday night. He called me around 8 o'clock. So he wants to have an employee meeting Sunday morning at 9 a.m., an emergency meeting. To which my response was, I know what this is, right? And he said, you're right, we're, we're closing the restaurant down. And so we did. And that was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do was tell 80 people they no longer had employment effective immediately, effective today. And even though I wasn't the one that made that decision um, and the truth is, n nothing that I had done along the way contributed to it, really. Um, I'd only been there a little while, and it was fine. It was doing great financially. It was really things that were beyond my control. But it still hurt. But what hurt even more was being the last man out. Uh, in order to get the severance package that I wanted, I had to stay until 
all the employee issues were dealt with and, and everyone was discharged. I had to stay weeks until the vendors came and got their uh, materials or their equipment or their lights or, or their food, anything that we were going to sell back to them or give back to them um, in exchange for money. And so well, I would be selling back to them, right? So anything that had to be done to winterize the building, to close it down, I had to stay and see through till the end. And it was this really weird, eerie feeling of that last day when I turned off all the lights and all the equipment for the last time and I locked the doors and walked out. Um, it was, it was, it was almost like a funeral for me. It was, it was morning because I had, I had worked there previously and, and been there over the years and, and was so excited to be back just a few months before. And all of a sudden that was gone. And there was this kind of weight. Like I felt like I was the, why on my watch, right? <laughs> why on my watch is this all going to pieces? But the truth is the die was cast for that path long before I got there and with things that were outside of my control. I inherited much of it. That doesn't mean it didn't feel bad because it did. Now, what does that have to do with what we're studying? Well, we're in the book of Second Kings uh, and the name of the study is Faith During Faithlessness. And we're gonna talk this week about King Hosea who was the final king of the kingdom of Israel. If you remember, that's the northern kingdom of the people of God. There was Israel and there was Judah. The northern kingdom had a succession of 20 not good kings, right? They, they did evil in the sight of the Lord. That was kind of the phrase that just repeats itself and it's gonna repeat itself with Hosea too. And, and though he owns much, and we're gonna read about that, the truth is that path was cast before he got there in many, many ways. The 10 of the 13 original tribes of Israel actually made up this northern kingdom. Uh, it began with Jeroboam, son of Nebat. We talked about him last week. I feel bad for Nebat. Um, but and the, they also um, had not held to the line of David throughout their existence. In fact, nine different dynasties had taken power through theft, murder, pick, pick your nefarious activity, uh, they had to chosen to take power that way. And so they had not maintained the line of David, whereas the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, had. But Ho Hosea is the last one in this long line of kings. God had given Israel, the northern kingdom, 200 years to repent. 200 years and 20 kings to turn back to make different choices to do something differently. We talked about this earlier. Every time there's a king change, it's really a new season. It's a new opportunity, a new direction, a new set of expectations and hopes in many, many ways. But each king had chosen to walk down the path of those that came before them. And Hosea just had the unfortunate, you know, call it luck or whatever, to be here at the end when the results all finally come crashing down, when the decisions made 
years before and continued all the way along as they kind of kick the can down the road, thinking as long as we're not done in yet, God must be okay with us, right? Even though he'd been warning them all the way. Hosea is here to see it at the end. So we're going to read about his story and see what we can gain about not just his life and the decisions that he made, uh, but really get to the core of some of the challenge that the people of God had with following him throughout all of the Old Testament, really. And even in today, sometimes the challenges we have in obeying God and doing the things that God is calling us to do. So if you would, turn in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 17. We're going to read verses 1 through 14 today. We're going to start with 1 through 6. 2 Kings chapter 17 verses 1 through 6. I'm going to read out of the CSB. It says this, In the 20th year of Judah's king Ahaz, Hoshea son of Elah became king over Israel in Samaria, and he reigned nine years. He did what was evil in the Lord's sight, but not like the kings of Israel who preceded him. King Shamanesser of Assyria attacked him, and Hoshea became his vassal and paid him tribute. But the king of Assyria caught Hoshea in a conspiracy. He had sent envoys to the king of Egypt and had not paid tribute to the king of Assyria as in previous years. Therefore the king of Assyria arrested him and put him in prison. The king of Assyria invaded the whole land, marched up to Samaria, and besieged it for three years. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria. He deported the Israelites to Assyria and settled them in Hala, along the Habor, Gozan's river, and in the cities of the Medes. So Samaria, Samaria was the capital city of the northern kingdom. It's also known as the city of Omri. If you remember that, that was Ahab's father, um, one who did much evil in the sight of the Lord and who Ahab kind of followed suit. In fact, Ahab did even more evil in many respects, really twisting the kingdom and turning the kingdom. But Samaria was the centerpiece of the northern kingdom in so many ways. Um, Ahab had built a palace there. It was a grand city. In fact, there are writings of the time, contemporary writings, that, that would say that it was one of the most beautiful spots in all the land. And here now the king of Assyria is destroying it, besieging it, tearing it down. In some ways, it is the focal point of what the people of the northern kingdom have chosen to invest themselves in other than the things of God. Now there's a term in here, he was a vassal. It says that Hosea became a vassal. That, that term, we currently use the term vassal state would be a descriptor of it. But a vassal state is a state or a country that has, it's subordinate really to one another. They may have a treaty with another country, but, but really it's a one-sided treaty and their independence is really in name only. King Hosea, in this case, was a figurehead. He wasn't really in charge of anything so much as his job was to make sure that things did not get out of hand. We see vassal states used as a way to um, take over new territories used throughout history and, and even into today, right? We're, we're currently watching uh, Russia invade Ukraine, and they keep saying they're trying to restore peace and put a... Uh, a new government, a fair government in. And I think what 
what they're really trying to do. And again, I'm not inside Vladimir Putin's head, but my guess is based on their history and what they did in Belarus as well, is to put in a government that is essentially will operate as a vassal state for Russia. It will do what they want done and really will be dependent upon them and have no other way out. They really want to create kind of a an exclusive contract. That's a great example, I think. An, ex an exclusive contract with the people of Ukraine saying, you can only get from us. You can only serve us. You can only work for us. And the things that you choose to do must be in our interest if you want us to approve them. Back to the restaurants. I try not to talk about those too much because <laughs> I spent a lot of years in them. But, but I remember one time we were, we used an exclusive, we had an exclusive contract with a food distribution company that was the supplier for one of the places I worked at. And we were only supposed to buy stuff through them. And I, I didn't realize just how um, strict that requirement was. We were going into a weekend one, one time and we were out of something that I could not find. I, they could, that distributor could not get to me in time. So I, I made some phone calls and found another local distributor in town that I could go there and just pick up the stuff and pay cash for it and bring it in and, and go to work with it. And we did, we sold it, everything went well. But afterwards my, my boss was like, you did what? And I told him what I did. He goes, dude, you can't do that. I said, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do anything wrong. He goes, no worries, but the thing is, that could really mess up our entire contract. It could give them a reason. If they find out we're getting this product from somewhere else, it could give them a reason to rip up the contract, renegotiate and really put us in a pickle. I didn't realize that. I had no clue, it was early on in my career. I had no idea what that meant, but that's ex essentially we were permanently connected to that distributor and going outside of it would have been similar to what Hosea just did with the Assyrian government is going outside that permanent connection. But why would he risk that, right? The, we see that the Assyrian army then invades and, and they spend years sieging Samaria and ultimately they take it and they take the entire Northern kingdom at this point. But why would you risk that knowing the power of the Assyrians at this time? because it was likely the largest empire in the area by a long shot. And why Egypt? I mean, there's no way they thought Egypt was a bigger threat. That's just unrealistic to think of. Maybe maybe it was um, the enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of thing, right? Where, where I don't like the Assyrians, you don't like the Assyrians. Maybe we should figure out how we can get rid of, together, get rid of the Assyrians um, and, and the truth is nations have been doing that for years as well, even if they are unsteady allies, right? They don't really trust each other. In World War II, the Americans or the, the, the allies, Americans, British, French, all got together and they actually agreed to partner with the Soviets, even though they couldn't trust them. They didn't feel like they could trust each other. Nobody trusted anybody. It wasn't just one-sided, all because they wanted to stop Hitler. They were uneasy with one another. <laughs> And they truthfully watched one another all along, even while they said they were working together up front. Those kinds of partnerships occur often when we feel like we're pressed against the wall and we feel like there's something we have to deal with and we don't feel like there's another option but to partner with this other force, even if we don't agree with them. Even if in some ways we are fundamentally different from them. 
right? Which boggles my mind that he would pick Egypt, Egypt of all places, right? Egypt. Are you kidding me? <laughs> you mean, did anybody read Exodus at any point during this process? Do they remember it at all? The, the Egyptians were the people that enslaved God's people for 400 years. It's the Egyptians that God did this mighty work lifting up Moses, parting the Red Sea, right? The 10 plagues. I mean, it's filled in their history. These are the things that God had done to get them away from the Egyptians. And here they are back just a few hundred years later. Here they are back with them again. How quickly they have forgotten so many of the differences and the pain that the Egyptians had caused them. <laughs> Looking to Egypt in particular tells us something. It tells us much about how little the people of Israel have learned in this time period. Let's keep going into chapter 17, verses 7 through 14. It says this, it says, This disaster, that would be the fall of the northern kingdom, happened because the people of Israel sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and because they worshipped other gods. They lived according to the customs of the nations that the Lord had dispossessed before the Israelites and according to what the kings of Israel did. The Israelites securely did things against the Lord their God that were not right. They built high places in all their towns and from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves sacred pillars and Asherah poles on every high hill and under every green tree. They burned incense on all the high places, just like the nations that the Lord had driven out before them had done. They did evil things, angering the Lord. They served idols, although the Lord had not had told them, you must not do this. Still, the Lord warned Israel and Judah through every prophet and every seer, saying, turn from your evil ways and keep my commands and statutes according to the whole law that I commanded your ancestors and sent to you through my servants, the prophets, but they would not listen. Instead, they became obstinate like their ancestors who did not believe their God. Real quick, I misread a word in there and it's important because it, it goes to what one of their challenges was. It was in verse nine and I'll put it back on the bottom of the screen. It says, the Israelites secretly, that's the word I mispronounced, secretly did things against the Lord their God that were not right. They built high places in all of their towns from watchtower to fortified city. They did things secretly against their God. The entire phrasing of this paragraph at this point should sound very much like a broken record, right? If, if you've been reading along with the book of First and Second Kings with us, this is the phrasing that God has repeatedly used, right? They're not listening. I'm sending people to tell them they're doing the wrong thing and they're not listening. They're turning away from me. They're worshiping Baal. They're worshiping Asherah. They're building high places. Those are temples to those other false gods. And they're, bottom line, not following me. It's, it's a repeated concept problem, even though the Lord had delivered them from Egypt. And he's, again, he's reminding them here, I've delivered you from all that. Do you not remember? <laughs> they, they suffer from a loyalty issue, right? The, the people of God in this time period are loyal 
to the Lord, frankly, as long as it suits them and only as long as it suits them, which isn't really loyalty, right? It's not really what a loyal, abiding relationship should look like. If if this were a marriage, right? <laughs> and someone was loyal to you in your marriage and faithful to you, except when it was inconvenient, you wouldn't call them faithful anymore, right? If, if someone was in an exclusive contract, a business contract with you, and they adhered to the stipulations of the contract, unless it didn't suit them, the contract is null and void. It's no longer a relationship. Essentially, what the people of God are doing, almost with every generation, is using God. They're using him for the benefit that he can give in the moment. And quite frankly, they're turning their back on him when something else brighter or shinier or with that feels better, frankly, comes along or feels safer comes along. They turn their back on him. They use him. It's the kind of relationship none of us would really want. And yet that is the cycle of the people of God. Then, and sometimes I think even now, so given that Hosea and many of the kings who preceded him failed to honor God and his expectations that they used him, right? Is it ironic or poetic that Hosea's conspiring to avoid paying Shamanastar, the king of Shamanesser, the king of Assyria, tribute? Did that lead to Israel that that led to Israel's downfall, right? It's there's a life, physical life with individuals living out the reality of their failing relationship with God. They're seeing this unfaithfulness, this disloyalty, this lack of trust in the Lord come to life throughout their daily decisions in that they don't trust anybody other than themselves. What really cracks me up, and I, when we went back and read that verse, is verse 9, where it says they were being secretly, the Israelites secretly did things against the Lord their God that were not right. And then it goes on to say they built these temples, these high places all over the place, and they offered these offerings all over the place. It's this notion, I think he's really kind of saying, you think it's secret. It's really not. You think it's a small issue. It's really everywhere, right? It's not just something you're doing on the side that doesn't affect anybody or has no downside to it. It's bad and it's destroying your relationship with God. It's destroying your capacity to, to even begin to approach God and to be holy. It's a much bigger deal than you think it is. And there's nothing secret about it. You're deluding yourself thinking it's secret. Paul talks about this a bit, a little bit in Galatians, the idea that you can do a little of these things that are thoroughly unholy, right? Choosing to worship other gods is, is one of those things that I think everyone who follows the Lord would say, God would call that unholy. That's pretty typical, right? Thou shalt, it's 10 commandment stuff, right? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. It's pretty, pretty clear, right? But Paul talks about it when he's talking about false teachers who have led people astray from the gospel, led them astray from the word of God and the, the life-giving message of Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection. 
And he says to them in Galatians chapter five, verses seven through nine, he says, you were running well, means you were moving right along. This sounds a lot like Joe Ash from last week, right? He's running well along the pathway, pursuing God. But who prevented you from being persuaded regarding the truth? Who caused you to move sideways or off the path? The persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. It does not come from God himself. And then he says this, a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough. I I think it's similar to what he's saying to the people of God here, to Hosea. He's saying, look, you think this little bit of worshiping other gods is workable within the greater construct of worshiping me, right? But it's really not. In fact, it makes any worship of me nearly null and void. It has a profound impact whether they want to believe it or not. That's how sin works. So keeping this sin secret, they thought it was secret and really it wasn't, in this case, worshiping other gods, doesn't contain the damage it does to their relationship with him or to themselves. And it doesn't contain the damage it does in our lives either. They also repeatedly refused to listen. Um, Grace is one of the most beautiful gifts that God gives us. Grace is his capacity to recognize that we are broken, that we are imperfect, that we are going to make mistakes out of ignorance or sometimes just flat out disobedience, right? We're going to do the wrong things. Grace is available to those who choose to say, I did the wrong thing and repent of that and to come back to God. I think you have to first recognize the error before the grace is available. (laughs) But, But sometimes the people of God there, especially, they use that grace not as that safety net that catches them from making mistakes, but as an excuse to avoid listening to God altogether, to kick the can down the road and go, well, the consequences will come later, essentially. And if you kick them far enough down the road, it feels like they're not going to come at all. And then you can do whatever you feel like doing, and it's all good. And yet God is telling them repeatedly, that's not how this works they're refusing to listen. I think sometimes we do the same thing in our relationship with God, where he is telling us through his word or through his spirit or through someone else who's a follower of Christ who's talking to you. Or maybe he whispers in a different way, right? In just the circumstances he's setting up in your life. The the truth is, as I moved into pastoring, it was only because God slammed a whole lot of doors in other areas, right? He made it very clear because I'm a little slow and a little obstinate sometimes, I wonder where my kid gets it. (laughs) He made it very clear that I needed to change directions, that he had another job for me to do, and it wasn't what I was doing before. Even though I liked it, even though it made a good living for my family, it wasn't what I needed to do. And I was refusing to listen. And when I finally did, it was like this weight just dropped off my shoulders, and I went, oh my goodness, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. But I had to listen, right? 
I think the challenge here that we're seeing throughout the story of all the kings and all the first and second kings, one of the major obstacles that the people have had, the people of God have with following him is trust. It's actually trusting God, trusting his direction, trusting his purposes, trusting his plan, trusting that whatever is going on, if he's asking you to do it, to refrain from sin, to worship him, to not lean on people to solve your problems instead of leaning on God to solve them. Whatever it is he's asking us to do, we're not able to embrace fully unless we trust that he is who he says he is. And trust is a very hard thing for us to come by. I would like to say, especially in this day and age, but the truth is it's always been hard to come by. Why? If God created us and we read and we know intellectually God loves us, right? And God is looking out for us and God sent a savior for us and God has given us an opportunity to be a part, to be adopted into his family and be with him forever for all eternity to watch out for us. Why do we struggle so badly to trust him? Well, I think there's lots of reasons, frankly. One is fear. Fear of fear of things just not going well. Fear of experiencing difficult times, pain, anguish. Fear of life falling apart all around us. Fear of death. There's lots of fears we have, no, no, none greater than that. And it's no wonder that the Bible says repeatedly about 365 times, once for each day of the year, by the way, something along the lines of do not fear or fear not. <laughs> it's because clearly fear is a problem, fearing the things of man instead of fearing the things of God. I also think worry gets in the way, right? We worry that if we trust God, everything might fall apart, which really means everything might not go the way I want it to go. Right. Or if I trust God and I'm no longer in control, because that's really what trust is, it's putting the control in his hands, then maybe I'll fall apart. I don't know what's going to happen on the other side of this if I'm not controlling my situation. If I have to allow God to do it, that's a whole other, he might go a different direction and I might break. Sometimes we have trouble trusting God because of our personal history. If we grew up in a, in a family that was abusive, those, your parents are supposed to be the people you can trust. And I'm very blessed to have parents that were always looking out for me and that love, still love me very much. But if you grew up in a family where they didn't, right? If, if one of your parents was abusive, you're supposed to be able to trust that person, right? And, and yet that, they're burning you right? They are burning that trust. They're making it very, very hard for you to begin to trust anybody. Maybe a past betrayal in your history, right? If someone you were in a relationship with cheaped on you, or someone that you thought was your friend talked about you behind your back. It's really hard to trust anyone, let alone God, right? Let alone God that we're supposed to give all the control to that history can play a part. And we need to recognize that, that sometimes it can influence us in ways that we, if we don't recognize it and point it out and name it and say, look, we've got to deal with this, it can keep us disconnected from God whether we want to be or not.
I think another reason is we sometimes have a distorted image of God. That is to say that we assume that his feelings and his limitations are the same as ours, right? Our love often has strings attached, right? I love you as long as you are loyal to me. If you cheat on me, I don't love you anymore, right? <laughs> may or may not be the case, but sometimes it does, right? Sometimes our anger isn't limited to just holy things. God only gets mad about things that detract from holiness. He doesn't get mad about the mere, getting cut off in traffic. That has nothing to do with our holiness. <laughs> our response does, but that actually happening, it's got nothing to do with it. He doesn't get mad about things that we get mad about, but we read that upon him and assume that just because we're mad about it, God's probably mad about it too. That's not the case. Our kindness is limited. God's is not. But we think to ourselves, if I can't be overly kind, surely God can't be that kind either. And that's simply not true. In short, people let us down, including ourselves. We let ourselves down too. So we assume God will too, even though he's not people. He's not human. He is something far, far better. He is perfect. He is God. That doesn't stop us from reading that into our relationship and into his character, even though it's not the case. Sometimes I think we have trouble trusting God because our view of what control is really stays limited. Um, we say, Jesus, take the wheel, to quote Carrie Underwood, when things are going crazy, right? In certain moments of time, we say, Jesus, take the wheel. You got to take this and take over. When the truth is, if, if he is really in control, and we really are his vassal state. In other words, he really is in charge and we really serve him, then that control is not momentary or not reserved for a time of conviction or an altar call. It's not reserved for praying once a day. It's not reserved for when things go absolutely haywire and you can't control them anymore. The control's gotta be given to God ahead of time. Another reason I think that we have trouble trusting God, and I'm listing all these because I, I, I want us to see that we have a lot of stumbling blocks that sometimes we don't recognize, right? Another one is this, it's because we are really, we are really kind of slaves to our present. How we feel, um, what we're experiencing in the moment dramatically affects how we are connected with God sometimes. Sometimes we will chase a feeling or we will chase happiness. We will chase joy. We will chase satisfaction. We will chase um, a career. We will chase the deepest desires of our hearts that have very little to do with God. And we feel like we have to chase those things and we throw God aside in order to do that. The author William Blake has a poem that I, I just, I love that kind of describes this challenge. It says, he who binds himself to joy, right? He who is chasing joy, who is j just the pursuit of joy is, is the focal point of his existence, right? He who binds himself to joy does the winged life destroy. In other words, they're, they're unable to fly and soar the way they so badly want to because their focus is in the wrong place, right? He who binds himself to joy does the winged life destroy, but he who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise, right? 
He who recognizes the joy that's present in their life in the moment and is able to appreciate it and love it, but doesn't make it the focal point of their life means that they will not be a slave to that pursuit. Instead, they're able to see eternity, the sunrise, eternity lights up before them and they're able to see the glory of what lies ahead instead of being hyper-focused on that one thing, chasing the moment. So how do we learn to trust God? How do we learn to try to overcome all these obstacles that get in the way between us and God that are really in so many ways self-imposed, right? Well, I'm going to say start by checking his credentials. Check his credentials. You know, before you um, go to a new doctor or a new CPA, if you have one, or a new mechanic, you ask around, you find out, you check references, you get on Yelp, you do something to say, is this person, do they know what they're doing, right? Checking God's references is easy. It's in a book that he gives us. It's called the Bible, right? He gives us a book that we can look at, look through, read, to hear his story. To see his faithfulness, not just from one generation, but across hundreds of generations, thousands of years. We see that when he makes a promise, he keeps it. We see when he says he's with them, he stays with them. And we see when he says he will lay down judgment, he lays down judgment. We see when he says he's going to send us a Messiah, he sends a Messiah. These are God's credentials. And reading through them on a regular basis, reminding ourselves of it, equating ourselves with it, over the eternity, God's demonstrated over and over that he is worthy of our trust. And we need to remind ourselves of that. Number two is is ask for his help. Ask for his help. Stop putting it off until we are desperate for it and ask for his help up front. Start with asking Even if it's just a little thing, start with a little thing, but start for asking his help and saying, God, I need to learn to trust you. I need to put something in your hands and allow you to work it through. I think along the way, you'll find out that a whole lot of things that we make a big deal about, God's already got figured out. And it's really not nearly as big a deal as we make it. The next one is to choose to hold on. If you want to trust, learn to trust God, you have to sometimes choose trust. Sometimes choose God over another avenue. That's kind of the definition of faith, right? It's saying, I choose to have faith that he will carry me through. Sometimes, and this is the hard part, that means ignoring our emotions. That means ignoring the fears, ignoring the worries, ignoring the pursuit of joy, right? Ignoring our emotions and choosing what we know to be true. The next one is to let go, to learn to let go. Remember we said Jesus take the wheel isn't just for big moments, it's for all of life. We need to learn to let go of the things that we trust instead of God. You know, we talk about the book of First and Second Kings right now, but really the story of a king, a human king in amongst God's people begins way back in, the, in Samuel's story, where the first king, They demand, the people of God demand from the prophet Samuel to appoint a king. And the prophet Samuel says, no, that's ridiculous. God wants to be your king. God wants to lead you. 
And they say, no, we want to be just like all these other nations around us. We see that they have a king. We want one of those too. And they begin to lean into them and trust the things that they are teaching. Human beings, right? Instead of God himself, surely the right king will get us where we need to go. Surely the right army will win us the battles. Surely, and if you look throughout the scriptures, there's story after story after story of God saying, it's really not about all that, it's about me. But Hosea and the kings that all came before him didn't recognize that. They never got to the place where they were willing to let go of all the other things they were leaning into. They were grasping at whatever they could to try to get what they wanted, frankly, to try. Well, they really, at the end of the day, only trusted themselves, period, end of discussion, only trusted themselves. And the relationship with God was really just one of many options. You know, I'm going to straddle the fence on all of them and I'm, I'm going to consistently pick the one I like in the moment. And again, that's not a relationship. That's not a commitment. That's not loyalty. That's not faithfulness. That is being unstable as water, going back and forth with the waves and doing whatever it is you think to do in the moment. Problem is waves crash. Eventually they turn into tsunamis if you get enough motion going and they destroy everything in their path, including you. The last one, I think, when the, the last one is this, is start small. Start with little things. Start with trusting God to work out, um, to work out challenges with your job, or to work out a disagreement with your spouse. With your spouse, trust God to work out challenges with your kids. And those you may say, "Well, those aren't little things, Robin." I understand, but if if we can't trust God to get me safely somewhere, if I can't Trust God that he has a plan for putting this really slow truck in my way right now. And by the way, he did that with me once. He put a dump truck in my way going down the road at 35 miles an hour. And I wanted to get past that dump truck so bad I could taste it. And I followed him for like three miles. And I couldn't. I could not find a gap. I was driving a minivan. They don't accelerate fast. I couldn't figure out how to get past this dump truck. It was driving me nuts. And this guy in this little sports car finally ducks out and flies by and goes down the road. And then about two miles down the road, I see him pulled over by a police officer. Now, my gut reaction could have been, ha, 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 better you and not me. But my reaction instead was, holy cow, God put a dump truck in my way so I wouldn't get pulled over. Because I would have been going faster than the speed limit. I promise you. Trusting that God will provide a way that God will provide time, that God will provide finances, that God will provide whatever it is you need to fulfill his mission. Start small, start simple. Don't overcomplicate your life. And eventually, as we begin to build that trust slowly, we start to trust him more and more and more and trust him with the big things like our eternity and our salvation and the scenarios and situations in our lives right now. 
it's a big leap to go for, from I don't trust God really truthfully to I trust him with everything. It doesn't happen that fast. It takes time for a heart to change. And you'd be surprised that if you can find a way to trust God, I mean, I have my moments too where I can't, but for the most part, I'm, I think I'm getting better at it. And one of the reasons I think I'm getting better at it is because things don't worry me the way they used to. I'm not worried about provision because God does an amazing job of providing things before I even know I need it. As much as there are challenges in our world, the, the politics of our world and the, and the pain and anguish of our world, I don't worry so much about it because I know God has sent a savior. God will work it out. Prices are rising like crazy right now. It'd be really easy to get worried about inflation, right? Instead, I'm thinking, I just need to cut back on some things and God will take care of it, right? It makes it easier to do without things in the moment because I know my eternity is covered. And my eternity started the minute I chose to follow him. That is what he's asking you to do, to trust him, to follow him, and believe him. And you will be blown away by what a difference it makes in your life now and for your eternity. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you and he be gracious to you. May he grant you favor. May he give you peace. God bless.